Welcome to the See Me Now podcast. I'm Kelsey Coleman here with my co-host, Caitlin Birdsall, and we are joined today by CMU Professor of Biology, Dr. Thomas Walla. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Your background or expertise is in tropical ecology, and I think that's so fascinating because you're actually from Rifle, Colorado. How did you get into to tropical ecology? What led you there? You know, growing up in Rifle, I was really interested in the outdoors, hiking, fishing, mountain climbing. I wanted to be a mountain climber, and I was actually applying for jobs to be a mountain climbing guide's assistant because I wasn't good enough to be an actual guide, and I came across an area of tourism called ecotourism, and I applied for a job to be a natural history guide in the Amazon rainforest. And what did that look like? So you just hop on a plane, you're you're dropped in the middle of the, the rainforest, and were you just thriving automatically, or were you like, there's a lot of bugs here and a lot of creepy crawlers? It's interesting because at that time, it was before the internet was a part of our lives. So the first thing I did when I found out about this job and and was to go and look up the country of Ecuador in a library to find out where it was. And the second thing I was told to do was to contact travelers to figure out if this location that was going to hire me actually existed because there was no way to know it was there. Um, and it did exist, in fact, and it was one of the first, what they called a five-star hotel in the middle of the jungle. And they, uh, they said, well, what we'll do is we will, uh, if you fly down here, we will train you for two months. And if you're good, you can stay for a year. And if you're not, you can go back home. And uh, so I did. I jumped on a plane and I flew to Ecuador. They picked me up at the airport. I flew on another plane. I rode on a bus. I rode on a motor canoe for 75 kilometers downriver. Then we got out and walked for a mile. And then we got into rowing canoes and we rowed for a mile. And then we ended up at a thatch hut in the middle of the rainforest with delicious food and a tremendous amount of wildlife and green things. And you just fell in love. I really did. I think that people are often afraid of the Amazon. It looked a lot like the, the I also grew up in Ohio some of my childhood. It looked like a forest in Ohio, except there were really, really large, occasionally scary animals out there. And we didn't find those in Ohio. So had you always been interested in animals and biology in the natural world, or did that develop through your undergraduate and graduate studies? I always enjoyed the outdoors. I did not know that I had the potential to enjoy studying organisms until I spent time as a rainforest guide. My primary skill set there was speaking Spanish, so I would translate from the indigenous people to the tourists. But along that path, one can't help but learn the value of knowing the bird species, for example. I probably knew three bird species before I went, and two of them were probably wrong. Um, now I have seen over 900 species of birds, and it's a rich part of my life. Um, and I, I never would have had that experience or that knowledge had I not been exposed to that kind of a culture of ecotourism. So it sounds like traveling made a huge impact on your life and living in Ecuador for, I think you said, almost three years. Um, how do you pass that maybe knowledge on to students? So now that you're teaching here at CMU, is that something that you instill in your students that 
that traveling should be a part of maybe their future and what they do? I do try to encourage every class that I teach. I encourage students to reach out beyond the classroom. They should attempt to travel. Any opportunity they should make, they should do it. They could think about getting a set of new tires for their truck, or they could get an airplane ticket to another part of the world and change their lives forever. And I really think that international travel, both to cities and to wild places, is an absolutely essential part of human growth. It's essential for helping our world better understand uh, how the other parts of the world are operating and how they might be valuable. And it's essential for understanding other cultures. And I, it is exceedingly important. And I have tried to take, I mean, I've taken 11 different courses to Ecuador. And I think everyone has been profoundly impacting for the students. I, I want to dive into the interconnectedness of the world, because I think you probably have experienced more than most how we are connected to the natural world and how there are so many species that live in our world and, and how they work together in an ecosystem. You know, it is really meaningful, I think, for people to recognize and witness the role of the natural world in human civilizations. Um, here in Grand Junction, we have amazing beauty here. This is why I, I love this place. But that beauty is extraordinarily specialized into desert habitats with cactus and soil crust and pinyon and juniper. And I've taken hundreds of field trips to the pinyon and juniper habitat. Um, and it, But if you ask people, like in the Grand Valley, their relationship to nature, how would they describe it? And for most people, it's fairly limited. Some of them, it's outdoor sports, some it's farming. Um, but if you were in the Amazon and you asked people what their experience is with the natural world, and you asked a Quechua person or a Warani person, they would ask, what other world is there? And, and they would say, if you looked at each of them, they have a knowledge of hundreds of species that interact with their lives in different ways. Not all of them are as essential as the food we eat, but they're the sounds they make, the way they look. And so if you thought about an Amazonian person, that person's interaction with the natural world would look like a, a big star of connections to all of these different species for which they have names, histories, associations, origin stories, um, all of these things. Um, so it, I think that recognizing that can really add value to our lives I, it's so great that you said that because we recently had a faculty member who uh, focuses on agricultural science on the podcast and they talked about, um, you know, the food we eat and, and how eating real food from the earth really makes a difference. And when I'm sitting here talking to you, I'm thinking of how have we evolved as a species and how have we gotten away from this interconnectedness in our culture? I mean, I think in most of our, I, I, I do teach evolutionary biology, so some of those phrases are important to me and what they mean, and I, I think that our changes away from nature are largely cultural. I think that uh, certainly as humans, we evolved in, within a community. We had to find things to eat. We had to find shelter. Um, and, uh, and, and now I think that culturally, we've been able to remove ourselves from that. And I don't know. I think that we're missing something. I think that the urban world we live in is a beautiful one in many ways. But I do think that our lives are richer if we have an opportunity to appreciate diversity of organisms and how we might better be able to interact with those. 
So I want to talk a little bit about, you know, you've obviously got a lot of experience um, being out in the world and traveling and studying different animals, interacting with different people from different cultures. Um, What is that like bringing all of that back into the classroom? So here at CMU, I really appreciate that our faculty are so hands-on. You're in the classroom teaching our students. You know them by name. So what does that look like for you, taking your experiences from the world and being able to bring that back to your students? You know, I think it's challenging to do in a lot of ways. And we do this through photographs, through film, increasingly now through video resources, through readings. Um, I think it's rewarding to be able to tell people that there are, for example, a long series, there's a, there's a great number of mutualisms in the world that are between different organisms where both organisms in that interaction, both species benefit from the presence of the other one. Um, True mutualisms that range from pollination to the organisms in coral reefs to mycorrhizal fungi and the plants to um, ants and plants in the Amazon. And even more interesting lately, we have a lot of bacterial symbionts that appear to be exceedingly important. So, I mean, I like to bring them back. I think it does bring value to the lives of students. Um, But I also like to bring it, like, I think it's even more profound just in the area of biology that it doesn't stop at pollination. Um, It goes on to the organisms in your guts, right? The endosymbionts. It goes on to the fact that only one in 10 cells in your body is yours. The rest of them are bacteria living in, on, and around you. It's a complicated world. And all of these things at these different scales interact and largely along some of the same rules. And so we can see those rules in ecology, competition, mutualism, predation. You know, we're not the only living creatures on this planet, and we have evolved vastly and relatively quickly. Are there other species that you found in the Amazon or beyond other creatures that have taken on this evolution of um, of rapid growth that they'd have they'd have to adapt in some form or another? One of the most amazing groups of organisms that I'm able to work with are the caterpillars of butterflies and moths. Those organisms are often underappreciated because their life cycle is largely crawling across leaf surfaces. They can't see much with their eyes except for light and general directions. Uh, Many of them live and feed at night and hide during the day. But one of the things I've been able to study is the diversity of defenses that caterpillars have evolved to protect themselves from both their enemies that are organisms as direct predators that would eat them, and also from parasitoids, which are wasps and flies that seek to lay eggs inside the caterpillars so the young can develop on their fat bodies and eventually consume them, and and the caterpillars die, much like in the movie Alien. Uh, They erupt from the body wall, killing the caterpillar. Um, Caterpillars have all these amazing defenses. Some of them have little tiny hairs on the surface of their skin that can listen to the high-pitched whine of a parasitoid wasp when it approaches. There are others that have urticating spines that will pierce and and injure predators that are trying to eat them, including humans that try to pick them up. There are caterpillars that have brilliant colors that warn predators that they're chemically defended because they store the compounds of the toxic leaves that they eat as part of their bodies. There are caterpillars that have learned to sort of thrash about, bite, and regurgitate spit. Um, They have an incredible diversity of 
defenses, even though they're what you might consider a defenseless organism. When I hear something like that, it makes me feel so useless as a human. I'm like, I can't do any of those amazing, cool things that these insects and animals can do. So that's really fascinating that you've studied caterpillars and moths, and I can only assume that you've done and conducted quite a bit of other research. Is there any other um, parts of your research that you'd maybe want to talk about today? You know, some of the work that we've been doing um, recently looks at how speciation and coevolution occurs in in the tropics, and we're able to do this on. We're, I, I should say, it's best to do this in the tropics because. There are great arrays of species. So in our group is a bunch of tiny caterpillars of which there are probably 20 to 30 different species feeding on a genus of plants. And very little of it is known to anyone because they're small caterpillars. These are moths that you wouldn't think twice about swatting off of your nightlight outside your porch. They're tiny and they're brown and they are hard to tell apart, but there's many different species of them. And they specialize on these plants called piper plants, of which there are many different kinds. And the chemistry of the piper plants is very complicated, and there are many defensive compounds in there that protect them from herbivores, and yet these these caterpillars are the specialists, and they eat specifically those plants. And we sometimes get as many as 700 caterpillars from a single plant. And as an ecologist, the numbers are delightful because we need large numbers to estimate means and and to estimate life cycles and to estimate parasitism rates. And so it's really a fascinating system uh, and that I think uh, provides us some nice opportunities to use all the modern techniques of DNA sequencing and genomic sequencing and biochemical analyses to figure out what's happening in nature. Can I ask, how do you determine what you're going to study in your research? Is it just a passion about a specific insect or animal or location on our planet, and then you pursue it as a a larger question that you have, and then you figure out what you're going to study to answer that question. How How do you determine what you're going to research as a biologist? Probably the most important determining factor in in sort of the way that I choose research topics is what my colleagues are working on. Um, More and more science is a collaborative effort. And I work with a group of people from about five different institutions across the United States that have, you know, their productivity is exceptional as they work at these tier one research institutions. And so what I've enjoyed doing is getting involved with their work and finding an angle on it that is something that I can contribute to, but I can also be a part of the modern machinery moving forward in biology. For example, on these small moth caterpillars, I can collect caterpillars, I can measure how many on each plant, I can have students go and map out plants and, and, and collect all these organisms and grow them up, but I don't have the resources to sequence the entire genome of, of one of these, and then the bioinformatics capacity to figure out what to do with those sequences. And what I really like is that my collaborators do. So I get to ride along on this exciting boat full of people that are all doing the cutting edge important work. And yet we're taking something very simple like a brown moth in the Amazon along for the ride. And it it gets to, to be a focal point of some of this pretty exciting frontiers in, 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 in biology. Assuming that there are people out there saying, so what? What? 
why is an ecologist important? Why are we spending all this money to, to research butterflies or caterpillars? What would you say to them? The first thing I would say is that studying caterpillars is very economical compared to studying most other things. Um, I think that the field of bioinformatics and genetics, genomics, DNA sequencing, those are some very expensive businesses. They also have some very clear health consequences for humans, and much of that work eventually does come around to benefiting humans. I like to think that the work that I do benefits humans, and it also benefits ecosystems. Primarily, I believe humans are better off they have more value in their lives if they appreciate and have knowledge about the things that are around them. So something that we know nothing about, like a little brown moth at your light, you think most people say, swat that, cook that out of the way. I hate these moths. I wish they weren't here. And yet, if I could tell you that each of these moths has been living all, you know, for maybe a year or two, growing on a plant out here and which plants it is, what compounds they eat and don't eat, where, where the species are, why this region is unique. And if you took the time to recognize that, you would think twice about that moth when you saw it. And you'd go, oh, this moth has a culture. It has a history. It has an interaction. It has a place. And that value enriches our lives. And I think that value also adds to the likelihood that people will maybe be careful to protect some of these species in their wild places so that our children and children's children can continue to derive value and pleasure from these interactions. You are a part of a team right now that is working on a challenge put on by an organization called XPRIZE. And we were talking a little bit before the podcast, and I just found this really interesting. So I wanted to take just a few minutes to talk about what is this challenge you're participating in, and how did you get involved? The challenge is called XPRIZE Rainforest. And yes, it is put together by the XPRIZE Foundation, um, largely supported by the Alana Foundation for XPRIZE Rainforest. And this organization is interested in motivating um, individuals to tackle tough problems and just drop all the average and regular barriers that occur that would prevent people from working together, that would prevent people from trying to leap for the gold, so to speak, and uh, just try it and try to solve some of the really tough problems in the world. And the, the, the tough problem that XPRIZE Rainforest wants to solve is eventually, how do we save the rainforest and the people who live in it? Like, how do we do that? And, and they believe that one of those tools is to develop a rainforest sampling or measuring device, they call a solution, that can go into the rainforest autonomously and identify species and derive insights which are everything from what would be a good crop to grow there to what are the best trees to protect there to what values do the indigenous people have there to understand more about it, to measure it, and thereby be able to assess the true value of rainforest so that it enters into the bioeconomy of the world. Because right now it's undervalued. We know it's undervalued and we can't seem to get people to value it what we think it should be valued. Yeah, so the X Prize is is uh, is a big challenge. And can I ask, how did you get involved with X Prize or with this challenge specifically? One of my collaborators, uh, Lee Dyer, said, "Hey, have you seen this thing? We should try it. You should you should make a team, and we should do it." 
and uh, I started an XPRIZE team, and uh, we're, we're working to solve it. it it's an exciting prize because it's a $5 million prize. So if we win, um, then well, presumably we get this $5 million, and our goal is to use that money to help actually preserve the rainforest and do research in the rainforest in the area where the indigenous people live where we're working. So I guess I should be specific about the X Prize in that um, the, the goal of the prize is to design a solution that will sample a square kilometer of rainforest in 24 hours um, with 48 hours of data processing. And in that period of time to identify the largest number of species and the largest number of insights in a tropical rainforest. And it's incredible because that does seem like a huge, like, you know, where do you even start when you're trying to tackle a project like that? But I love that you're involved in something that is a very long-term solution that may seem unattainable. But when you bring together all of these great minds from universities across the nation, that you're taking time and years to work on this to hopefully find a solution. You know, it is really exciting. And um, I think what's what is amazing is that when you try to tackle this problem, you do you bring in people into a room, and the only people you want in the room are dreamers. You want people that actually are willing to think about what could be, not what do I have right now, and that's that's incredible. So I have I've met with um, several people at Arizona State University, our anthropologist we work with, and a um, uh, a musician actually, a flute player who does uh, eco ecology of sound. And uh, I've also dealing with a, a neuroscientist in New Jersey who works on electric fish and can listen to fish through the water and identify their species by their electrical signals. Um, and I've gotten to work with DNA specialists who are telling me, like, what can we really do with DNA from the rainforest in 24 hours? What, what's possible? And it's just amazing to learn about the cutting edge of those fields and to try to integrate them into a solution. You've answered the question as to why we should care. And I think to your students in your classroom and how just listening here today to you, how inspiring your work is and how interesting, how many times do you find a student coming into one of your biology classes and thinking, oh, wait, I, this is a field I can go into. This is a, you know, this is a pathway and, and just getting that feeling of, wow, I found my, my place in the world. I mean, it happens sometimes, probably not as often as I would like. I think that oftentimes students, those moments occur to them after they leave the classroom. You know, I think most of the time they're like, they're in there, they're doing this, and then they come out the other side and they're like, oh, you know, I'd like to keep doing this. And so they go on and looking for jobs and careers that associate with those things. You know, occasionally some people do. Um, actually, you know, become some have become tropical biologists, some have become research scientists, um, and that's really exciting. You've been here for how many years? I believe this is my twenty if for twenty first year. Twenty first yeah, year. 21st Do you have year. any success stories of students who have gone out into the world and done something you want to sh give a shout out to? I think that's a really good question, and I think that. There are people out there that I think know that I'm really proud and excited of the work that they've done. I'm not terribly comfortable singling out individual students and letting the world know what they're doing. Um, but I know that I have really appreciated those that have gone on to graduate school and, and followed careers in ecology it has been very exciting. Um, it's also been exciting to be 
sometimes I'll be out hiking somewhere and I'll come across somebody that actually was a student in my class and now they're uh, they're working for the Forest Service or the BLM or they're a ranger somewhere and you know they're doing what they want to be doing and I think that's that's very exciting as well so um, you know I certainly want to celebrate that I just think it's it's very exciting and when do we find out if you were selected for the X Prize? When, when is that? Wow, yeah. So the X Prize is a three-year prize. And uh, so there are two more years left in the competition. This month, well, June, we have our, our next submission. So they'll eliminate 10 more teams. So they're at 35 teams now, and they'll drop to 25. Um, and we'll see if we pass that semifinal uh, period. So then, then we'll have another year of work before we see if we make it to the next level. Well, good luck. Yeah. And thank you so much, Dr. Wall, for being here. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to share. Thank you for listening to the See Me Now podcast. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.